Hey everybody, this is episode 28 of Artist Soapbox. Hello and welcome to Artist Soapbox, a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am Tamara Kassane. Today I'm talking with dancer and choreographer Killian Manning. Killian came to the Triangle from Boston, where she was a member of Susan Rose and Danceworks, served on the faculties at Radcliffe Danceworks and the Boston Conservatory, and founded her company, No Forwarding Address. Her award-winning choreography has been seen in Salt Lake City, Boston, Chicago, Birmingham, and North Carolina. She has served on the dance faculties at UNC Chapel Hill, Radcliffe, the Boston Conservatory, Repertory Dance Theater, and Samford University, and currently teaches at the Ballet School of Chapel Hill. Killian is also full-time faculty in the Communication Studies Department at UNC Greensboro. She has a BA in German, an MTS in Theology, a PhD in Performance Studies, and Point Shoes from Freed. Enjoy the episode. Hello, Killian. Hello, Tamara. Rhymes with camera. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for being here. So happy to be here. Really appreciate it. I'd like to start with a quote by Twyla Tharp that I see in the footer of your email, and it's always intrigued me. The quote is, art is the only way to run away without leaving home. How does this quote speak to you? I have always felt the need to run away always felt the need to run away. When I was a child, I would swing on the swing set and I would look up at the clouds and I would imagine what was going on there, who was up there, what were they doing. Um, My first dance that I made, I was eight years old. It was called Meeting a Rabbit. Okay, I lived in the suburbs. There were no rabbits. But I was running from where I was to another place. And I think that as I got older and became more aware of what is going on in the world, running away from the status quo, social injustice, cemented identities from the path that is always expected, that art was the way to run towards something, mm. to run away, but also to run towards. It gave me an opportunity to explore And I think the sense of home, it's difficult to take risks when your life is at risk, when when things are so much in chaos. And I have certainly made work out of that place of fear and darkness and chaos and just continued with the chaos. But as you get maybe more secure in just having a job, having a place to live, having enough money to ride the bus, that then you can explore more risks because there's a little bit of safety here. Mm -hmm. And I think art... You don't have to leave that home to be able to get to the scary places. Mm -hmm. I am a runner, uh, historically. Uh So whenever things got difficult in my life, I would – you know, move mm. across the country or mm-hmm. uh, even just leave the house or, or try, just mm-hmm. this sort of trying to get away I have a long relationship with. And I like this way of reframing that running as something that might potentially lead to healthy growth or additional growth. Yes. I think, I think that that's important. I also have done the, a lot of running away in lots of different Possibly in there's a lot of negative connotation with running away. Mm-hmm. That's about avoiding things and shirking responsibility or being unwilling to look. And I think 
running away from some things can also be very positive. Mm -hmm. There are some things that we need to run screaming from the room about, Mm -hmm. but then art gives that place to run to. Right, right. So let's talk a little bit about your come from, because Mm. I don't know your backstory. So tell us. Well, tell us. Because I am of a certain age, the backstory is long. I did not I did not know I wanted to be a dancer. I danced from 8 to 13. I was in a small ballet company in Alabama where modern dance did not exist. So you were going to be a ballerina or that was it because it was at a time when modern dance had not really infiltrated regular studio vocabulary. Hmm. And my parents made me stop. And I think I I know my parents made me stop because I would come home crying and I was doing it six days a week and I loved it more than anything. I was so passionate, so absorbed, you know, catty. There's lots of little going on in the studio. And I think, and my parents saw that I was smart and they're like, our child is going to college. She's not going to dance. Mm-hmm. Boom. I got into running and swimming and did all kinds of competitive sports. And then I was at the University of Connecticut teaching German in the graduate program in Germanic and Slavic languages on my way to becoming what I anticipated was going to be a German professor. And uh, I lost it, lost it, just lost it. And went in to see the student mental health person who... I was really blessed that he was so fabulous. And I said, out of nowhere, he said, well, what what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a dancer. Hmm. And he said to me, put on a leotard and get out of my office because it's cheaper than therapy. (laughs) And so obviously it took me a while (laughs) to actually extricate myself from the German program and figure out how I was going to make this happen. Simultaneously with that experience, I was 23 I was at UConn. I was in love with this wonderful man who was taking a gap year between med school. And there I was in Stores, Connecticut, which is its own other story. And he was gone doing on an ambulance run (laughs) that night. And I was in his apartment and I was completely disconsolate. I, and I turned off all the lights and I went into the living room and found the stereo (laughs) and got out a Crosby, Stills and Nash record and put it on, and dropped the needle on Find the Cost of Freedom, and started dancing. Oh, wow. Okay. Where that came from, I have no idea. I was crying, the lights were out, the music was playing, and there was this moment. So what I did last night, because the we had just changed the clocks, I went through my all of my music on iTunes, and I like to do themes. So we did falling back, springing forward, saving, daylight, time. Those were all of the songs were the theme. And Daylight Again, mm-hmm. which is the Crosby, Stills, and Nash sort of remake of Find the Confist of Freedom, made it onto the list. And I went into the studio and I said, girlfriend, 23 years ago, I mean, when I was 23, how many, oh, do the math. I said, I know how to do this now. And I made this phrase and there were 12 people in the room dancing this phrase. And it was to the small girl who was crying in some boy's apartment (laughs) because she wanted to dance. After that, when I left stores, um, I moved to Boston. I was terrified of New York. I grew up in Alabama. I was not going to move to New York. 
but I could handle Boston. Mm-hmm. I knew I could. But I went to the School of Theology. My last uh, foray into dance after my parents had made me stop was liturgical dance. My minister had said, we need to put this to use. Smart, smart man mm-hmm. in Alabama. He was called the um, Satan by the Baptist church across the road. Oh, wow. Having this young girl dancing in his church. Oh, it was like scandal. (laughs) I know, craziness. Um, So I thought, I can do this. I'm going to move to Boston. I'm going to get a degree in theological studies because I want to make interpretive dance in the church. I want to bring embodiment to the scripture. Well, that, that lasted a little while. I mean, I did, I completed the degree and I was very fortunate. I was, danced at graduation master ceremony at Boston University School of Theology with a friend of mine sang. And it, it was a big part of that education, but I was also across the road in the dance department. Huh. And that's where I realized that the setting, you know, dancing in front of an altar had its problems. <laughs> yes, yes. And, I, and I began to understand that early. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> it's like, mm, and, and, and the tussle and bustle about what to wear and what you could show and what you couldn't show. And I was like, okay, these are not problems I want to deal with. I need to recontextualize the work. I need to, I, so it, it gave me the step mm-hmm. that I needed. And then, so I was in Boston from 80 to 88 and 80 to 82, I was pursuing that degree. And then I just, I just started dancing. I took class everywhere. People asked me to be in work. I was in their work. And No Forwarding Address came about because right from the very beginning, we were movers, not dancers. Hmm. And so playing on that pun, that there was something we were moving and speaking and the interdisciplinarity was already coming in to play. And I think I also fairly early had issues with technique, dance technique. It looks a certain way. And if you weren't going to be all about making steps and using choreography as your sole vocabulary, then I was like, hmm, okay. And a Laurie Anderson quote that is also one of my faves, uh, she said that she talks about exploring the voice in the place between speaking and singing. Hmm. And you can hear that in her work. And I absorbed that and I said, I'm exploring the place between walking and dancing. Hmm. And where are you walking and where are you dancing and can we blur those lines? Thus my love of pedestrians. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The people that you see in my work who don't think of themselves as dancers but movers. And I wanted speakers to move and I wanted my movers to speak and I kind of push them to do that Mm -hmm. because I think that's important to the work that I'm trying to make. Right. You started out in German Mm -hmm. and you went Went to theology theology, and then you transitioned into communication studies. So here's how that happened. (laughs) Another story. I love telling stories. So I left Boston in 88 with a very, very broken heart. My friends had said, don't let him run you out of town. A year later, they're like, get the fuck out of town. Yeah. So they they called, I had some friends connected to ADF, and they got me a video scholarship. I didn't know anything about video, but I, they said, she's very smart. She will learn. And I was like, yes. So I came down to ADF and lugged cameras around and learned a whole lot about shooting and editing and things like that. And so I stayed. And... 
I started making work right away. That was my very first evening length piece, Father's Day in America. Jeff Storer was in the audience for that back in 1989 Mm -hmm. because after the performance, someone who knew me said, did you hear that laughter? I said, yes. They go, that's Jeff Storer. (laughs) That's a good sign. And I was like, yay. (laughs) Everyone knows that laugh. Everyone knows that laugh. I didn't. I thought, who is that laugh? (laughs) (laughs) But that was a, a kind of a wonderful entree into the community. Yeah. And... So I made work uh, from 88 until – I was here from 88 to 94. And what happened around 1992, after the Duke performance of Dear Sir or Madam Mm -hmm. that was at Reynolds, one of my dance students at Carolina said, you really need to meet Della Pollock. And I thought, okay. I had gone to the library after Dear Sir or Madam and checked out three or four books that I knew I needed to read. One was Rosalie Goldberg's um, performance from Futurism to the Present, a fabulous anthology of performance studies work, Mm. and a couple of others. But that's the one I remember the most. I had that and those couple of other books on my bedside. I was reading them thinking, damn, I need help reading these books. Mm. I need someone to guide me through them. So that was in the spring of 92. So in the fall, fall semester is starting. And where I lived, I would walk down um, towards campus, and I would go through the communication studies building on the way to the gym where I taught all my dance classes Mm. as a part of the PE department at Carolina. And I thought, okay, I'm going to just see what this Pollock person is teaching. At that time, it was on pieces of paper on a desk. You could just go look. (laughs) So I go and I look, and there is one class that she's teaching that is not one I'm teaching. Hmm. So I say, okay, okay. I'll give it a try. It was called The Rhetoric of Performance. Most mind-blowing class I've ever taken in my Mm. life. So I go into that class. The room is packed. Only 25 people are supposed to be in the class. And there must be 15 others Mm. trying to get signed in. And I'm like, well, and of course, everyone is a million years younger than I am. Mm. And I'm thinking, what am I doing? I'm not sure. She pulls out the syllabus and those books were on the list. Mm-hmm. It was all I could do not to just like dissolve. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to sit here and figure this one out. So she said, everybody who's not officially signed up in the class, just come see me after. We'll talk about it. I'm letting all the undergrads go because I'm like, I don't need the crap. You know, they needed to sign up for the class. Right. So I get to the end and I, I kind of shuffle on them. And I say, I'm Killian Manning. She says, I know who you are. And I was like, oh, she says, I've seen your work. I said, I just really want to be in this class. I said, but it says here you have to type papers. I said, I don't have a typewriter. Mm -hmm. And she laughed. She said, we don't use typewriters anymore. We use computers. I said, well, then I'm really, she said, just come. Just start coming to the class. We will figure the rest of this out. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it didn't take three weeks, and I had applied for grad school. And that was the performance studies was where, my heart was and where my brain just latched and exploded and traveled everywhere. It was, she was, is such a, was such a mentor. Yeah. Hmm. You know, and, and then you know, making a lot of work, it was a department wherein making work was a requirement. And so that was fabulous. And then she sent me on to grad school out of the university of Utah. And I guess, 
when I think about all of these things, why did you choose those areas of study? Well, they were all what I thought I was going to be. (laughs) I thought I was going to do German. I thought I was going to sort of stay and be sort of like the John Wesley circuit writer and go around to different churches and do movement workshops and, you know, not have the Puritan shunning the body for the love of the spirit, but to say, hey, the bodies are here. We're here for a reason. And then I did think, I did think I was going to get a position in performance studies in a comm studies department where making work would constitute research and that that's what I would be teaching. Mm -hmm. That hasn't happened. And that is okay. My department is fabulously open. I get to teach two performance classes a year. So I have one in the fall and one in the spring. Mm -hmm. Uh, My chair comes to everything I make in Durham and everywhere else. Uh, Is a complete, understands that I take sort of ethnography and then move it into performance. And, and so it's, it's good. It makes for working, you know, three times as much because I make my professional work and I'm teaching for four. But it's, it's great mm-hmm. because I can turn students on. Teaching performance studies in a, in a way that is coherent to people who, you know, it's going to be their one or two second shot at it. That's, it's just not, it's a part of the comm studies I guess, panoply of course offerings, but it's it's a one-shot deal. So in the fall, I have been teaching a class almost the whole time I've been there, almost 14 years, where we pick a topic that is timely. And so we did communication and the environment. And we looked at everything that is out there about the environment and people trying to greenwash their companies and what's going. what are the messages that we get. And instead of writing individual papers, we write a script Mm -hmm. and they perform it Mm -hmm. at the end of the semester. And for some people, it's like, yay, no papers. And then they realize how much work it is. So each little research group would look at a certain topic and then we would turn it into scenes and then they would have to be memorized Mm -hmm. and then they would have to be embodied. And and then you present it publicly Mm -hmm. on reading day. And I think think so many of the things that are learned are group work and responsibility. And I'll say right off the bat, you know, when you turn in a crappy paper, it's just between you and me. There's no shaming. There's no nothing. You don't care. I don't care. I read your paper. You know, that's, it's private. Mm -hmm. I said, if you don't do your work in this class, everybody can see. Mm -hmm. So you have an obligation to make this thing work to the best of your ability. And I and I also got to say, you know, what are your strengths? And everybody identified things they can do. And it's like, here's what you can do in a production with those kinds of strengths. Mm-hmm. And identify. And I would say 95% of the time, it's a really gratifying experience for everybody. Hmm. It seems like your relationship to dance and creating work has been enriched by studying these other areas. And and yet you've been able to carry this through line, right? You've never let go of it. What do you think about how those different topics of study and making work and dance have all interwoven? It seems extremely logical to me. And yet I understand that from the outside, it's like, whoa, very disparate elements. How do they come together? I think that spirituality, sort of stepping outside of religion and saying spirituality and saying 
humanity and compassion for human beings and and looking at what causes pain and and exploring that and the salvation that art can possibly offer i think with german it gave me a very different way of looking at things for starters their verbs are in a different place <laughs> and then you just go from there all of the literature that i read pretty dark stuff and yet beautiful and i that gave me the idea okay dark can be beautiful beautiful can be dark and gave me a template for exploring that and then with performance studies and with rhetoric the idea of juxtaposing texts so i'm thinking um the simon and garfunkel america song beautiful hopeful was preceded by the ethel rosenberg trials so here was an actual event of democracy in action slammed up against what democracy was supposed to be about mm-hmm. and and i i find those tools of rhetoric slamming things up against each other non sequitur where can your mind ping pong back and forth and how does that make each thing look different mm-hmm. how does ethel look different in the light of simon and garfunkel how does simon and garfunkel look in the light of ethel mm-hmm. but it sounds like what you're also talking about with the study of performance is learning what it means to the te- the technique of creating work with the tools of approaching how you build a piece so it's not solely intuition but there is a craft to making the work and dissecting the work as well yes and and i remember a point where i had been working with a composer for a couple of years and i had started reading a lot of books that composers had written musical composers um Aaron Copland Lou Harrison because they wrote about composition in ways that choreographers did not nobody was writing about how to make work mm-hmm. and composers were and i was like okay i'm going to read this because i'm looking i i did read some theater as well because i didn't understand as much about theater because the text preexisted the plays preexisted so i was not always sure where the creative element came in with that and perhaps i was just being ignorant mm. you know it's a because, very interesting question yeah because mm-hmm. derek i think is my best friend and i should probably <laughs> just shut up <laughs> at this point and but of course interrogating that and figuring that out and about who makes choices act actors make choices directors make choices scene designers make choices all of that mm-hmm. that comes together i get that but this i was making the choices i was making all of the choices because mm-hmm. and i wanted to know how to make those choices what am i thinking about so yes intuition that's the part where i come into studio sometimes and i say i've had the stream what do you think mm-hmm. but i will accumulate a lot of ideas i will do a lot of reading i will gather a whole bunch of images i will gather stories i will give them writing prompts i will do and then i will say here's this phrase what does it look this movement phrase how what does it look like to this music what does it look like if we do it in silence how can it mean you know what are the varieties of meaning we can get out of it mm-hmm. so the all of those tools were important for me mm-hmm. there are and i have studied with some phenomenal dance makers 
Mark Morris. There's not a more musical being on the planet, and he makes dance, and he just makes dance, and that's what he makes. Mm-hmm. He, he, there will never be any talking in a Mark Morris dance. There will never. I don't think I've ever seen him use props. Hmm. He is a dance maker, and he's brilliant. I wasn't going to be that. That's not where I was going. But studying with him gave me some pieces that I desperately needed. Mm-hmm. Trisha Brown as well, another the loosey-goosey, fabulous movement vocabulary. She also, I mean, she has ventured into a few other realms, but she's a dance maker. And the way she puts movement together is mind-boggling. Mm-hmm. She's a genius at putting movement together and generating movement and she I studied with her in the summer of 91 I think and she gave a a lecture demonstration about how she made this piece called Opal Loop which is one of her early seminal works I sat through the whole talk with my mouth open trying to write things down going I couldn't understand this if you paid me Hmm. It was so complex. It was geometry, geometric, geometric, chance, predetermined, interpretive. She had all these things going to figure out what people were going to do when and where. And it was a beautiful dance. Hmm. What that method did, oftentimes our bodies get very patterned. And and if you do this, then the next thing you're going to do is this. And 25 years later, you're still turning on your left leg on the inside, right? It's right. it's what you do. And so to break that up, you either have to get, you know, jar your body or give your, say, okay, m- these are the movements, assign them numbers, mix them up. So you can't do this after that because right. now it says you got to do the other thing. And so how do you make it go from here to there? Hard work in the studio. Oh, that sounds hard. And it's and sometimes it's not very fun because it's very fun to dance the way you know how to dance. Right. right. <laughs> it's very fun, very gratifying. After you train for a gazillion years, you wind the instrument up. And this is how I go. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you talk about Mark Morris. You described him as a dance maker. What kind of a maker are you? Mm, Tell me about how you question. would describe the work that you create. Mm. I make work. (laughs) Um, I remember a review of Closer to Black, Dances Designed with Your Coffee Cup in Mind. And a friend said something similar. And then a reviewer said something also similar that said, this is not dance. And my reaction was, okay, but can you just look at it for what it is if it's not dance? Because I... I'm not heavily invested in you calling it dance or calling it theater or calling it performance. I think that's been one of the the trends that's been difficult for me to discern, to <laughs> interpret. There's performance, there's theater, there's dance theater, there's theatrical dance, there's dance. It's like, uh, I can appreciate audiences want to have some kind of idea of what it is they're coming to see. I completely get that. And yet, I have often felt that I want I want Man Bites audiences to see Uncle Sam mm-hmm. because it's theater. It's 
a play. I would never call it a play, but you could call it a play. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be okay, not really heresy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It would not be heretical to say it's a play. It's a play that's got a lot of really great dancing in it. Or if it's dance, it's got a really lot of great theater in it. I just, that's trouble. And I appreciate, I say this again, I appreciate that audiences need a little in. But I'm I'm still at a loss for how to articulate that. I find it to be, as you just said, helpful to label a thing. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, we always find comfort in that. Mm-hmm. But... It sets up a certain expectation for audience members. And then if they don't see what they expect, the response can be less than what you hoped for as an artist. And I think that's really where it gets tricky because people show up and they're like, well, I thought it was going to be an XYZ and it wasn't an XYZ. It was an ABC. And then you're like, yes, it was always an ABC. I never said it was anything else. It's just you wanted to put it in a box, and then Mm -hmm. when it didn't fit in your box, you got upset. And so I think that that is where I get tripped up sometimes. It's it's then handling um, those expectations that were not met, but you never – you never invited those expectations for your work, you know? Right. They were not the parameters you were ever working under. Right. So you talked about this a little bit, but – are signature markers of the work that you create. If you want to take a look at what you've created over time, mm-hmm. because I know that Uncle Sam Wants You, which I saw in the fall mm-hmm. at the Living Arts Collective, is your 19th full-length work. So you have a wonderful catalog. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you would like to talk about pieces that stand out to you in particular, that would be really interesting. Or just um, and use those as, as examples of What defines the work that you make? Okay. I look at the ordinary stuff of life. I made a list of the things that I have made dances about. Ugly Father's Day ties and long trips in station wagons. (laughs) Plastic silverware stained by spaghetti sauce. Rain, junk mail, letters, coffee cups, dreams, wine bottles, airplane tickets. That for me using my work to make sense of the world in a very, very small, that the more specific you get, the more general you can be. I buy that. Mm -hmm. Coupled with God is in the details or the devil is in the details, that the more I bore down into something, the more breadth it's going to display. Mm -hmm. And... I guess as far as a couple of works that I think that have really fulfilled that exploration, the experience of making the year of empty wine bottles, which was at Man Bites Dog in 2010. I had started with a very, very specific story that my sister Terry had noticed that my dad, when he would come to visit from Huntsville down to Birmingham, There was never any alcohol in our family. Never, never any alcohol in the house. Nobody ever drank, ever. That Terry noticed that there were periodically all these empty wine bottles stashed around her house. Hmm. And she has teenage children. And so she thought, it's the teenage kids. 
And then she started wondering, where are these wine bottles coming from? And then she kind of started wondering if it was dad. So I just thought, oh my God, the year of empty wine bottles. What could that be about? Right. What couldn't it be about? And so I started with people's personal stories about drinking. And I started with a lot of social norms about drinking. I thought about getting together for a glass of wine as opposed to going out to dinner, as opposed to going for coffee. It's like, how does that change the context? The whole cognoscenti. We had a very funny section about making fun of the aromas on the wine circle. Of <laughs> You know, it just played so beautifully into that humor. And then uh, I just kept digging. We had a champagne section where everybody had balloons. And we were doing this sort of balloon champagne dance. And we did the rim song. Mm -hmm. I, everywhere I looked, I could go more. I could go further. And that was joyous. Even though some of the sections were, you know, pretty sad. We mm -hmm. talked a little bit about destruction that can happen with alcohol. And the way that alcohol can mask some things for people that and we went there. I went I went as many of the places as I could. I was very happy with that piece. And I do have to say, because somebody not as nice would you to say it would say to me, Killian, when have you never not been happy with one of your pieces? And I'd say, You're right, I'm always happy with my work. Mm -hmm. I am. Good. I'm always happy with my work. I some people think that's a flaw because I'm not um critical enough or I'm settling or something, but I'm like, mm, I, I think I work differently than that. Mm -hmm. So I think the piece that came next, I worked with Jeff Storer on that, on the constructing of that piece. He was sort of my outside voice mentor. And he pretty much right from the get-go said, Year of Empty Wine Bottles is about your dad. 1956 is about your mom. And whoa, boom. Okay, it doesn't get more personal than that. But I had always loved Six Degrees of Separation. I had loved that idea. I loved that play. I loved that movie, but I loved that idea. And so 1956 Degrees of Separation was a way I could connect all kinds of disparate people by that year and to my mom and to my love of music and to Glenn Gould. And so we, I picked 12 characters and put them in conversation with each other, mm -hmm. either literal or figurative, figurative being dance. And I had a blast with that. I had a really good time making that piece and imagining. Mm. In retrospect, I wish I had been able to imagine more. There are some parts where I was like, boom, couldn't go anywhere further if I wanted to. There are other places where like, man, you should have leaned in. <laughs> should have leaned in there. And and again, sometimes it's time constraints. Certainly it's energy constraints. You mentioned being happy with your work and kind of raised the question about, is it okay mm -hmm. to to be happy with our work? And I think some of that has to do with what we're looking for from the process and the product mm. and the criteria by which we judge our own 
making. So what were you happy when you look back and you say, oh, yes, I'm happy. I feel good about my stuff. What, are, what do you feel good about? I think that also ties directly into asking what compels me to make work and to continue making work. And I loved in your notes that it said it's hard and it's exhausting. And I need to add, it is ridiculously expensive. Yes, very expensive. So expensive. And in my recent years, I've taken to saying, I make investments in art, my own. Mm -hmm. And that's where I put my money, my energy, my social capital, my whatever I've got, that's where it goes. And I think that has to do with me being happy with the work. I love being in the studio. I love working with my, my people. We're going to go back to that fabulous, fabulous shrink at the University of Connecticut. Because he had said, put a seed in about my family. Then many, many years later, in another therapy with another person, talking about family and talking about my work. And I said that I always really loved working with seven because seven is two and two and three and three and three and one. And it's this fabulous number. And this amazing person looked at me and said, how many people are in your family? Hmm. It's seven. <laughs> and she laughed and I had the grace to laugh. And then I thought, yeah, I'm getting to boss the seven around the way I want them. <laughs> In that sense, creating my own understanding of the pairings and the triplings and the five against the two and the first and the last with the three middles. And there's the whole tapestry right there. Mm -hmm. It's a way I keep a family, a family with me and explore possibilities, what could have been, what was, what might be, just a working palette that feels rich, mm -hmm. feels very, very rich. So happy, I really love making things that people feel invested in, that they want to do, mm -hmm. that they feel challenged to do, and they feel also very strong in, and that they feel as if I honor their contributions because Lord knows I do. That sense of working together to make the crazy woman at the front of the room's vision come true, that they have bought into that. They will balk. I mean, they will say, mm -hmm. and I'll say, I need to think about that. You're probably right. I mean, most recently in the Uncle Sam piece, there was a text from the New Yorker that I completely loved. It was a satire piece about Trump. And it had like, it was all short one sentences and I had everybody read them. And one of the dancers was like, absolutely not. Why would you want to do this? And the objections were really fierce. And I said, I will go home and I will go home and I will think about it. And I thought and I thought and I didn't want to give it up. And yet what happened was it never showed up in rehearsal again, <laughs> as is the way I thought, okay, this, this is not the ditch I want to die in. And obviously I could have had it done with only a certain group of people and not the people who were so objecting to it. She was very sure it was not going to do what I, I thought it was going to do. Very sure. And I thought, well, if she has that perspective, then you know somebody in the audience is going to have that. 
Not that everybody has to be on the same page, but it, her reaction was so strong. I was like, I got to honor it. Right. It makes me happy to make sense of the world through a specific lens that other people can relate to and offers them a little glimmer of something. It gives the people that I work with and it gives me a chance to be with. That's the thing. I'm going to (laughs) cry. That's the thing. Rehearsing is the way that I get to be with the people that I love. Mm -hmm. That's it. We will go out and have a drink after a performance or sit down and have a huge party or something. But the way I relate is in the way they relate with me, in the way we relate with each other. They love each other. It's amazing to watch the friendships develop. And and sometimes it's a little sad being on the outside because I am in charge. So I'm not always privy to all of the things <laughs> because I'm in charge. Not to paint a rosy rosy. We're not like who all with the what's his name? Bergman, who they all lived on an island together. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> We're not living together on an island. <laughs> right, right, right. Having each other's babies. Right, right. That's not <laughs> happening. <laughs> but there is a particular kind of affection. Yes. That grows in the room when you make things with people in a vulnerable intense way there is when you birth something with a group of people you have a connection that is different from other it is very different yeah and i think i can certainly understand in theater that it's it's ephemeral and that is just so hard to deal with it is sometimes because it is just gone and i all of my dear friends who experience it on an on regular basis. Yeah. There's a grieving period, certainly, yes. that happens mm-hmm. when you close, or when I close. Let me speak oh, for uh, no, I think you're When not I speaking. close a piece, there is a grieving period. I mean, I'm, I'm always grateful to get my life back yeah. and to have space. But that way of being, which is so, which vibrates with, with such energy, mm-hmm. is gone those people in that room at that time doing that thing, it's not going to be recreated. Mm. And at least in the theater pieces that I've worked on, there is no remounting. So, Mm. and even if you do, it's not the same. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the work that I've done, it's up, it's, it's gone, it's never coming back. And so that letting go of that and even the potential around it. It's like, well, it could have been this and it's never going to be this or so-and-so didn't get, chan- get a chance to see this and now, you know, she's never going to. And so that the cutting off of that potential energy mm-hmm. is also very challenging um, to for me to negotiate. And because I am an introvert and I suspect that many artists in this area are introverted, Making work with people in a room like that is a way of having that connection mm-hmm. that you might not, not you, but that one right. might cult- <clears throat> not cultivate after that. Yes. And so that vacuum appears. It's like, mm-hmm. well, all my people, all my connections right. are gone. Where is my tribe? Yeah, yeah. And so there's a kind of, it's just very, it's just a grieving period, I think. I think that's true. And you bring up a really good point about something that I've only more recently noticed about the nature of work 
when you are, I guess, an independent artist, when you're in a company like Trisha Browns or Mark Morris or any, you know, top tier, middle tier, that you've got rep, you create a piece like Dido and Aeneas, for God's sake, and Mark takes that everywhere. And you do that. And you might even get as tired of it as someone in New York City Ballet might get tired of Nutcracker, for God's sake. But that's a very different way of understanding the work. As a performer, you get to grow into it. As the maker, you get to grow into it. All of those things. And here, I've only, I've been able to restage just a few things. Sometimes with different people. Sometimes with some of the same. I can always say, I know it's not going to be the same. And so I try to go in with an open mind. Okay, it's not going to be the same. What is it going to be? I wonder. And going in with a little sense of wonder. And you know, oftentimes, I will look at something and I'll say, did I really make that? Let's, <laughs> let's, let's do that a little better. Right. Can we please? Let's unmake that. Let's remake. unmake that. Let's <laughs> pretend that my name is not on that and we will do something different. And, and that's fun. And I think some of the performers enjoy looking into that, you know, that back glance, like, wow, what was going on? But we don't get that experience. We're not in this area. Although I think Courtney, with her own grown dancers, I think is working on having a, a repertory company that mm. tours, and, you know, building work and not having it be just the one-shot deal. And I think more power to you. Yeah. In the pieces that I've seen of yours, Mm-hmm. You include a variety mm-hmm. of artists, mm-hmm. some of whom would not describe themselves as dancers and maybe be challenged to describe themselves as movers. For example, Gerard uh, Staten was on the podcast a couple of episodes ago, and he was in your Uncle Sam piece. And he's like, no one's ever looked at me and said, oh, Gerard, you can move, but Killian convinced me to do this piece and um he's you know he's he's very watchable so you put him on stage right. I, everybody wants to watch him but you have this way of including people of different styles mm-hmm. shall we say in your pieces why do you do that as an audience member when i watch phenomenally virtuosic dance there is a sense of remove oh my God, what are they doing? What can they do? How did they even think of that? What is going on? I am a mere mortal and here is this superhuman thing happening in front of me. You know why people watch the Olympics? Does it make you feel worse about yourself or does it make you feel great about the human potential? Right. You think It can go either way, depending on who you are, depending on what you ate for dinner before you came to the theater. The human potential, but not your potential. And I think that the different ages, the different sizes, the different colors, the different sexual identities, all of the differences, trying to make a microcosm, trying. I have always believed that whenever I put people on stage, somebody is always going to be watching one of them. And my sense is people in an audience look to see things for all kinds of different reasons. And for me to have a sort of uniform ensemble kind of, it's like, no. Sarah Adams-Bean has been dancing with me since 1988, off and on. I met her at Duke when I came to that ADF and stayed 
she was in the art taking classes and I saw her and I went right up to her. During Uncle Sam, so Sarah's been dancing with me forever. Her parents come down from D.C. and watch almost everything since day one. She said, my mom watches me all the time. She said, my mom watches me when I'm standing in the wings. (laughs) Absolutely. And I was like, and there you go. And I want everyone to know that what they bring is what I want in the piece. I want Gerard. I want what he did this amazing thing. I don't know if he told you. I didn't know he had been in the military. And in that opening ceremony, when we did the flag thing, he did this march and he did that heel turn thing. And everyone in the room was like, where did that come from? And he said, it just seemed like that's where it went. I was like, well, yeah, Mm -hmm. that's exactly where it went. And that's why, you know, I know that Jay can't take your eyes off her on stage. Jay Everts. Jay Everts, yeah. It's just... Whatever she has to bring, has to bring, not is impelled to bring, has to bring, is it's like, that's what I want to see. And I will guide that a little bit and shape it, but I want that landscape mm. filled in those particular ways. And sometimes it's true. Sometimes people don't really believe they have that, and that's something I can offer. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. If I see it, it's there. We'll make it happen. Right. Let me bring this out in you. That is a beautiful gift that you give to the people you work with to say, whatever you have to bring is what I want. And then you help them by shaping it, by teasing it out. Because I think so often when we come into a room, we're always trying to bring the thing Mm. that the person at the front of the room wants. It's like, is this it? Is this it? Is this it? Mm -hmm. Am I being enough? Am I doing this right? And to create a space for your artists where they feel like from the get-go, they're starting from where you want them to be. Mm -hmm. And then now you're just going to all walk down the path a little bit farther. Mm -hmm. It's just a really lovely space. And I understand why people love to work with you. And in fact, I noticed on Facebook and <laughs> and I noticed uh, at the, you know, after a show that you have directed that people shower you with affection. I mean, mm. and these are current students. These are former students. These are students from UNCG. These are students from the Ballet School of Chapel Hill. Mm. So there's a variety of people who come and show you gratitude for being their teacher and leader. And why do you think that is? I think it has to do with I I see possibility and I insist on possibility. So whenever I'm in a room, if I see it, it's like, you've got this. I'm going to either be your best cheerleader or your fiercest taskmaster, but it's like, this is what I see in you. Let's bring it to life. Mm-hmm. And I think that happens in a dance studio. I think it happens in the classroom. I think it happens in the rehearsal. And I'm not saying I see everything, good Lord. I am certainly sure that I am blind to many things. And I may only be seeing what I want to see. But oftentimes it's what someone doesn't know about themselves. Gerard, Jay, some of my dance students who just kind of don't. And it's like, I see it at UNCG. I see this. I see you being able to do this. Let's get there. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a kind of faith that is different than particularly, I think, for younger people that you can do anything you want. 
it's a lot more, it's more concrete. Mm-hmm. It's like, yes, you hear that in the background and then you come into a classroom or a workplace or something and it's, you're very far from that kind of support. I say, no, I see it. And it, it often gives people a, a boost that they need to then continue doing that more on their own or be braver to bring their stuff to other people to work, mm-hmm. you know. As the person who stands at the front of the room, which I know is its own kind of both solitary mm-hmm. and extremely maybe powerful place mm-hmm. to stand, what have you learned creating work as that person over these years that you think would be helpful for other people in that position to know? People need to know that you are working with them out of love and out of respect. I have been in plenty of rehearsal positions working for other people that made me feel very diminished. And I said, Let's see what happens when we don't do that. That the people that you're working with need to know that. They also need to know how vulnerable you are. They need to know, if they can't tell already. (laughs) Which, you know, when we're younger and fiercer, perhaps we hide it more. I don't know. I also got very good quickly at saying when I wanted to see something over and over again or da-da-da-da-da to say early on, it's not how you're doing it. I'm checking to see if this is what I want you to do so that the dancers wouldn't feel like, shit, we're not doing it right. Or what is it that she wants that she's not telling us? It's like, you know, it doesn't, it, it can't always be about pleasing me. It, it needs to have a bigger purpose. Right. And if I can say, it's not you, I think it's the wrong step, let me look again, and then it'd be like, no, it's not, it's not you, it's the step, let's fix this. Or, or in any kind of situation, to make it clear that I'm checking myself, not them. Because it's easy to just go, do it again, do it again, do it again, and kind of go, hmm, 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 hmm. Not fair. And so being fair in what it is you're looking for and how to articulate that so that those moments of insecurity or frustration can be, can be minimized and can be clarified. And also so that there is a base assumption that what we're doing together is trying to make a piece of work. Yes. And and that's what we're doing. It's all in service of this other thing. Yes. It's not just about the individual and and that it's in it's just in service of creation of a thing. Yes. Yeah. And and it's funny because as the camaraderie develops, you know, just like group communication, mm-hmm. everybody will have their little role. There will be the joker. There will be the rule follower. There will be somebody who says, how many counts does this last? And everybody. And then as we become more comfortable with those roles, we can sort of joke around. You know, I'll I'll play around with who's teacher's pet today. Mm-hmm. And, and we're doing it very much knowing that we've all been in situations where there was a teacher's pet and we weren't the teacher's pet. And so we can make fun in a way of that to not to know that. I know that I like the way he does this. I really like the way he does this. And if y'all all could do it that way, you know, there would be a lot of happiness <laughs> right. in the room. And the whole yet, piece would be better. <laughs> right. And it's like, and yet that's so wrong. And, right. they, and they know that that's not what I want to do. And and so, you know, and every once in a while somebody say, yeah, we all wish we could do it like that too. You know, <laughs> So that sense of respecting what each other brings and knowing that I'm not 
going to play favorites in as in any way that I can help doing that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What is next for you? What's what's percolating in your mind? Actually, on Thursday, I have a piece premiering in Greensboro at an art gallery as a part of a curated event called Eating the Elephant One Bite at a Time. A graduate student in the UNCG dance department is uh, has gotten the Greensboro Project space, which is an art gallery. She and I have been working on a couple of things. I'm going to uh, she's going to take a graduate study, independent study with me in the spring of next year. She said, do you want to do a site-specific? And I was like, yes, I do. So I took the upstairs of the gallery, which is really great. There are five artists, and we're all doing 10-minute pieces on a loop. So as people go, they can just come in and see whatever. And then at 8, we're all going to come downstairs, and she's made this culminating piece that we'll see, and then the evening will be over. So you got to come up the stairs to see my piece, and it's called Available Light. Mm. And I've had a lovely time working on that. And already the dancers are asking, well, when are we, what's next? What's mm-hmm. next? And I have ideas. I always have ideas. I think I'm very inspired by Stephanie Leathers has a series, uh, Sight in Durham, the site-specific work that she's doing. And I would love to do something like that in the Chapel Hill Carborough area. Yeah. Because I think there are plenty of fabulous places. Uh, we, about three years ago... Three years ago, did a Dancing at Dusk at Driad. And at Cafe Driad, I did this site-specific piece that I just loved. We timed it so that we're exiting into the forest at sunset. So the lighting was going down as we were leaving. It was just scrumptious. I would love to revisit that. I was going to say, that sounds like something that should come back. Yes, that is definitely on the list to come back. But I think there are so many interesting spaces. And to try to do something like that. In this area. Mm -hmm. So a little bit more of a curatorial role, inspirational as well, and sort of encouraging. I was saying to a friend of mine that many years ago, the Raleigh Contemporary Art Museum, which I don't think exists anymore, did a collaboration with choreographers. They had five incoming shows, and they had selected five choreographers. And we all met and we looked at the slides of all the shows and we each picked the show that we wanted to dance in front of. Mm. And that's when I picked, um, I know, Czechoslovakia. It was the the Velvet Revolution, No Window Broken is the name of the piece that I made because Václav Havel was writing about there was no window broken in this revolution. And I thought, oh, I want to like gather some sites, get in touch with the people who own them and say, we'd like to do some dance. Here's some sites. Here's some choreographers, mix and match. And as we move into better weather, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's also more possible. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that we're going to see as as the future. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it's not that we haven't done site-specific work in the past, but this idea of merging performance spaces and living spaces or pedestrian spaces, Mm -hmm. I think bringing work out to where other people are Mm -hmm. think that is the next step especially because performance space is becoming more and more limited we have to be creative with how we can bring work into the world so limited so near the very beginning of our talking today we talked about the twilight harp quote art is the only way to run away without leaving home and i think it's very interesting because that's the quote on my yahoo mail And here's the quote that's on my UNCG mail. 
let us say yes to our presence together in chaos. And that's John Cage, another intellectual mentor. I never met him, but find great, great, great inspiration in his work. But yes, to our presence together in chaos. And I think those two quotes kind of bookend what it is I'm about. We are here. It is chaotic. If we say yes, what can happen? Thank you, Killian, for today. Thank you. I'm so glad to have this conversation with you. I'm so happy to have had it too. Artist Soapbox is a listener-supported podcast, and this episode was recorded at our home studio. You can support this podcast via our Patreon page, patreon.com slash artist soapbox. If you've been waiting to support Artist Soapbox via our Patreon page, please wait no longer. Go to patreon.com slash artist soapbox and kick in a few dollars a month to keep this podcast going. You can see show notes and more on our website, artistsoapbox.org. And we're out. <laughs>